Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Water Cooler. It's Thursday, April 1st, 2021. Being that it's April Fool's Day, it is me, Sophie Mann, sitting in for David Brody. Now, before we get to the meat of today's show, I wanted to share with you a couple of headlines that we adjust the news feel like it's appropriate for the water cooler to run in the morning because they caught us off guard. And yes, these are real headlines, not April Fool's jokes. So let's take a look at a couple of them now. This is a headline from the Washington Examiner um, about uh, how immigration activists are protesting the renaming of a middle school because they are trying to rename it after President Barack Obama, who suddenly is being labeled an oppressor because of the number of immigrants that he deported during his tenure in office. That was a quick turnaround in terms of Obama being canceled. Let's look at what's next. We've got a New York Post headline. Governor Andrew Cuomo signed a bill legalizing recreational marijuana in New York State. Uh, We'll get back to that a little bit later on today's show. Love Love a good Cuomo update. Finally, we've got the MLB is discussing options for the Atlanta All-Star Game to be moved following the passage of the Georgia voting law last week by Governor Brian Kemp. Hopefully that doesn't happen, but in this world you never know. I was really surprised reading all of these headlines. I was almost convinced it was an April Fool's joke. It was not. These are serious. Anyway, let's stay serious right now. This uh, we're going. It's Thursday, so day four of Derek Chauvin's murder trial is underway. Um, He is the police officer who has been charged with the murder of George Floyd, which took place last May. Here to give us a brief update on that is the news editor of JustTheNews.com, Joe Weber. Hey, Joe. Hi, Sophie. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Tell us what you got. Okay. So today we heard from Catherine Ross, and this is uh, George Floyd's ex-longtime girlfriend. They were together about three years, and she went through a little bit about trying to talk about you know who George Floyd was. And we saw, it's interesting, if you listen to the opening arguments on both sides, they're going to tell you exactly what they're going to do, and they've continued to carry this out. They made this point that George Floyd is not sort of an object. He's a human. So she tried to humanize him. They talked about the things that they did together, you know, going to the sculpture garden, going out to dinner, how much they enjoyed eating. But as we've seen this pattern emerge in this in these uh, four days, um, once the prosecution or um, the defense for Eric Schauman, um gets these witnesses on the stand, uh, they take a few hits. They make she acknowledged the fact that both of them uh, were had an opioid addiction, and that George Floyd at one point recently, um, just last year, he overdosed. He had to spend five days in the hospital, wow. and that was not good for that. And what you can see, what, just one more point, the idea that the um, prosecutor said they were going to talk about the totality of the evidence beyond the nine minute and 29 second uh, video. And that will still be the viral video in which Derek Chauvin is seen kneeling on George Floyd. That's still going to have to be to beat to find him not guilty on these charges. They're going to have to find circumstantial evidence and other things like this to, to beat that. And that still will continue hmm. to be difficult for them. Got it, Joe. Well, thanks so much for the update. We'll see you a little bit later on in the program. Thanks for having me. President Biden spoke yesterday in Pittsburgh about his multi-trillion dollar infrastructure plan. 
uh, for Americans to build back better. Here to break down what's really in that bill is former director of OMB, Ross Vote. Ross, good, good afternoon. Excuse me. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So let's take a look at some of the numbers in this infrastructure plan. There, we're looking at $620 billion for transportation infrastructure. We've got $100 billion going to schools, $200 billion, north of $200 billion, in fact, for housing. Talk to us a little bit about uh, sort of your take on these numbers, where, where they're spending the right money, where they're spending the wrong money, if you think this is a solid plan or not. You know, what's your take? Sure. Yeah, this is not an infrastructure bill. This is, they call it a, a care economy investment bill. They talk about soft infrastructure. These are terms we never heard about two weeks mm -hmm. ago. Right. And even that $621 billion that you show, that only about $150, $160 billion is for roads, bridges, airports, ports, things that the American people would actually think is infrastructure. And what they bury in there is, is you know, diversity, neighborhood, uh, infrastructure that's designed to uh, reunite neighborhoods and, and housing and, and putting grant programs in place that break down neighborhoods that have prohibitions against multifamily housing. Uh, so across, this is just a big government. It's, it's very, very radical. And unfortunately, it comes with a, a pay for, uh, an attempt to offset it, of a massive tax increase where corporate taxes would go from 21 to 28 percent. Yeah, I mean, I was going to bring up that point, the, the tax increase. I mean, 28%, a 28% corporate tax rate, that's actually higher than China's 25% um, corporate tax rate. What will be some of the on-the-ground impacts of this? I mean, we've, we've heard before that it could mean the exact opposite of what was so heavily pushed for in the Trump administration, which is that American businesses will migrate to China because, honestly, the communists are, are taking less of their money. What do you think that's going to mean for American businesses? Yeah, it's going to make our entire economy much less competitive. And so you know that uh, that companies, they pass on those higher costs in terms of uh, lower pay, fewer jobs, less investment into their, their company. And so, you know, go down the line and it just makes our country less competitive and it, it, it makes it so that we're going to be competing. We compete with other countries across the world. And we're at the, you know, the beginning of uh, Trump's administration, we were at the very height of the OECD average. And so that, like, that's a problem. And we're going to head back towards that, those, those high levels of taxation. So in terms of even just paying for this bill, I mean, as I said, multi-trillion dollar bill coming on the heels of a different multi-trillion dollar bill. This is no longer the height of the pandemic. This is not emergency spending by any stretch of the imagination. Can we afford this? No, we can't. And the reality is we are already looking at about a $3 trillion deficit this year, $28 trillion debt deficits as a percentage of GDP, over 100% of the economy. And generally, those are the, the tipping points about when you're on the wrong side from an economic standpoint going in the wrong direction. And you know the challenge is that if this was something that was vitally needed, so for instance, last year, uh, I and others are part of the economic team of President Trump were saying, you know, we need to do what's necessary to respond to the pandemic, the economic shock. But that doesn't mean you just go, go crazy and start throwing everything at the wall. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they have, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to replace you know school buses in this right. in this plan and so you know this is not what's necessary and it's certainly not what you do when you are dealing with tr three trillion dollar deficits with a lot of national security needs to fund in the years ahead well so i think one pattern about this that is uh, particularly 
worrisome is that, as you say, the economy will become less competitive as uh, as the dollar loses some value. We're looking right now at sort of what I think some people are calling trends of hyperinflation. And when you have a stagnant economy and hyperinflation at the same time, you sort of get to this not unprecedented, but fairly rare economic moment that is just so incredibly devastating or could be so incredibly devastating for uh, Americans who are trying to grow their businesses, provide for their families. Do you think that that's where we're headed into sort of a stagflation uh, type of uh, type of arena? We could be, and, and you're seeing uh, analysts across the economic spectrum say that inflation is a very real threat. They're seeing interest rates creep up from where they were previously, and thankfully the dollar is still the reserve currency of the world right now, but that could change at some point. And so, you know, we're putting ourselves in a position where we have no flexibility, we have fewer tools to be able to respond at the national level to crises that come up. And this administration seems to want to relive the 1970s. I know it's when the president came to Washington, D.C., originally in the United States Senate from Delaware, but the American people do not want to have to relive the policies of the 1970s and Jimmy Carter. I was going to say, hopefully we're not looking at a Jimmy Carter situation. So uh, final question. This morning we spoke to former Housing and Urban Development Secretary Ben Carson, and he said that one area of infrastructure that the United States actually needs some work on, it's the classic answer, he said roads. What do you think the answer to that question is? Where do you think there actually needs to be some infrastructural improvement, and is it being addressed at all in this massive bill? It's being addressed a little bit to the tune of about $115 billion, only 5% of the package. I think the challenge is that you know, there are certainly things that we need to be able to address and fix. And, and the Highway Trust Fund is broken and doesn't have the resources that is necessary to be able to fund out uh, right now based on what people are contributing to it uh, for driving on the roads. And I wish we could have that conversation. We can't have that conversation because we're being distracted by climate resilience in this package and housing and childcare facilities and, and rebuilding schools. All of these things dis distract us from the conversation that I would love to have, which is how do we have a better infrastructure in this country and how do we devolve power to the states and to be able to make sure that when people have needs in their communities, those can actually get addressed because they have more of a say in how Washington, D.C. spends their money. I think that those are questions a lot of people are thinking about and will continue to think about as infrastructure week turns into month, turns into half a year, and maybe even a year. I'm sure this is not the last we will see and hear of this package. Thank you so much, Russ, for joining us today to lend your expertise to the matter. You bet. Thanks. When we come back, we'll be speaking with Congressman Brian Babin of Texas to talk about his recent trip to our United States southern border where the migrant crisis rages on. That's coming up after the break, I'm Sophie Mann, not David Brody, and you are watching The Water Cooler. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome back to the water cooler. I remain Sophie Mann, and boy, do we have a crisis at the southern border. Joining me now to talk about it is Congressman Brian Babin of Texas, who recently returned from a trip to the border. Congressman, good to see you this afternoon. Great to see you, Sophie, and you're exactly right. There is a, a catastrophe going on at the border. 
Yeah, so I mean, let's talk about that. I mean, first and foremost, this trip you just took, what did you see? What are the details on the ground? I mean, I think that this is a really important element to describe to the American people, just the, the sort of sheer audacity of what is happening down there. Well, of course, we're being told by the Biden administration that it's a challenge, it's not a crisis, uh, that the Trump, uh, you know, policies uh, of those that era, those four years were cruel and inhumane. Uh, so we went down there just to see, you know, they, they told us that there were children in cages uh, back during the Trump administration. We, we found out that those cages were manufactured uh, during the uh, Obama uh, years. And now uh, we have a situation down there that is unbelievable. Uh, we've got thousands of people coming through. Uh, many of them family units, many of them are uh, unaccompanied children, some of them as young as three and four years old. Uh, There's a horrible video we saw uh, uh, recently uh, of, of some coyote uh, dumping a, two, a three and a four year old child from 15 feet up on the top of a wall and letting them drop down on the ground and throwing their shoes over and then they, they hightail it off. But this facility we saw uh, in Donna, Texas, hmm. uh, being operated by the Customs and Border Patrol and Border Protection uh, agents, and who are doing a wonderful job at batting with a stick, Border Patrol agents uh, batting with a short stick, uh, undermanned, understaffed, unable to, to really care for this many kids coming across. This facility has a capacity of 250 children, and there are 5,700 children currently in that wow. facility. Uh, now, I got back last night, so it, it is unbelievable. There are the humanitarian disaster that's unfolding in front of our eyes. Uh, I don't know how the, 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 the Biden administration can, can continue to tell us that we have a secure border, that our, our border is, quote, closed, and they're turning them back. Uh, we saw them coming over in droves. Mm -hmm. uh, we saw them in these pods that, were, that are supposed to be holding like 20 people, uh, and there's uh, 600 in one pod. Uh, it, it is just, I, I can't tell you how uh, inhumane it is uh, to see this. And even uh, even little three-year-olds squatting down in the corner, uh, drinking a little, uh, you know, a little cup of milk. It, it just tears at your heartstrings to think uh, that the Biden administration has incentivized uh, these people to come up here and, and risk the, their children's lives and really to empower the cartels who are making millions and millions of dollars, not only and human trafficking, but drug trafficking are coming over in droves. As we've also visited with the DEA, uh, with the Coast Guard, uh, and we went to see the uh, uh, the, the uh, border down at Laredo as well, uh, and it is unbelievable. I'm so, glad you're showing some of these pictures. Sure. I mean, Congressman, I think you make a number of good points, and thank you so much for painting that comprehensive picture of what's going on down there. But as you say, I mean, this, this issue has been going on essentially since day one of the Biden administration, at very least for the past two complete months, you know, now we're in April, on the first day of April. So at least for February and March, we've seen upwards of 100,000 people sort of surge to the border. Vice President uh, Kamala Harris was awarded the responsibility last week of dealing with this crisis. We've heard very little from her office, if anything at all, except to say, to sort of mitigate the responsibility she was handled, uh, given rather. Joe Biden hasn't yet been down to the border to look at all of this. You know, 
Of course, there's the double standard in the media insofar as they've not really been um, accused of any sorts of huma humanity violations as the Trump administration so frequently was. But what sort of a response do you expect to see out of the Biden administration, albeit a late one? Sophie, I'm so glad you brought that up because as we uh, as we saw, President Biden uh, basically handed off the football uh, of the border uh, situation to Vice President Harris, uh, who basically, in fact, uh, everybody heard her, she laughed. Mm. When asked if she was going to the border, she laughed. Uh, so what we did, uh, me and my co-lead uh, of this delegation down to the border, uh, 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 Representative Arrington, he's from West Texas, I'm from East Texas, uh, we invited uh, Vice President Kamala Harris to come with us. We we didn't uh, we we asked her if she wanted to stop any place on our itinerary. Please come see what's going on. And this is the I believe we may have lost the congressman for just a moment. Um, we're going to try to reconnect with a congressman um, as soon as possible. But it sounded like what he was saying was that uh, he and this group with whom he went down to the border had invited Vice President Harris to join them, and she had declined. Um, you know, I'm hearing right now that the congressman is back on the line. Congressman, are you here? I am. I sure am, Sophie. Glad uh, to have you. So. Yes. Yeah, so as you said, uh, Vice President Harris did not come down with you to the border. When is the Republican faction expecting to see some movement out of the White House on this issue? I mean, it is such an issue on pretty much all fronts, as you mentioned, sort of the, the economic issues with the coyotes, um, the overcrowding issues at the facilities, and of course, the way that it impacts the people who, who you represent, just the towns that they live in. When can we expect to see movement? And what ideally would you like that movement to look like? Well, that movement needs to look like uh, the Biden administration re-implementing some of those policies of the Trump administration that were working, that absolutely stopped the, the uh, 2019 surge in its tracks. Uh, and uh, that's like the uh, migrant protection protocols, the Remain in Mexico policy, the Title 42 public health restrictions to be able to turn people back at the border uh, during a pandemic, hmm. uh, to re-institute uh, re the... Uh, uh, national emergency uh, declaration. Hmm. Uh, these are all things that need to, that this bad administration needs to do and quit trying to demagogue uh, President Trump. Those policies worked. And uh, I can't say that we ever heard back from Vice President Harris, uh, but if she's going to be the one leading uh, the administration on uh, on the uh, uh, the you know the border issue, then we need to hear from her. Uh, if she wasn't able to, to, to come with us to, on any uh, points of our itinerary, let's hear what she thinks. Uh, you know, is she still standing by her uh, statement of last year that uh, ICE is comparable and the equivalent of the KKK? Does she sure. still want Congressman, to Congressman, I don't want to cut you off, but we are about to go to break. Thank you so much for your thoughts on okay. this subject. We wish you luck in continuing to raise the alarm bells about this issue. We'll be right back with some news out of Arizona. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. 
Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back to the water cooler. Maricopa County, Arizona is back in the news. Check out this headline here from just the news. Com. Arizona Republican senators have hired an outside auditing group to review the 2020 election. Joining me now to discuss further is State Senator Michelle Eugenti Rita. Michelle, good afternoon. How are you? I'm well. Thank you. Thanks so much for being here. So, uh, Michelle, tell us exactly what's going on with this effort. You know, news broke yesterday that, as I said, Arizona state senators have hired an outside auditing group to go over exactly what happened in Maricopa, uh, Maricopa County back in November 2020. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And why shouldn't we? Um, there has been a lot of consternation, concern, apprehension, fear amongst our voters as yeah. to whether the election was run properly. And the least we can do is supply them um, with the verification needed uh, so that they have confidence in the administration of our elections. We couldn't get cooperation with the county board of supervisors. So the Arizona State Senate is doing it themselves. Okay, so how exactly is this going to work? Because, I mean, as you said, there was this long back and forth between uh, the County Board of Supervisors and the State Senate, a little bit of the House as well, uh, about, again, the, how voting went in Maricopa County. What exactly are you looking to have access to? Is this about access to the machines? Is it about a recount? What are you hoping that they will find, and how is this investigation going to look? Well, I don't know what they're going to find, but what I can tell you is we are going to have access to the ballots, the not just the voted ballots, but the um, adjudicated ballots. Mm -hmm. We are also going to have access to the equipment. We're going to have access to the technology and the software. And we have hired an independent company that's going to uh, methodically go through, again, the equipment, the software, the ballots to make sure that our laws were upheld, the process ran smoothly, and if not, we'll highlight what those deficiencies are so we have an opportunity to fix them in the future. So, I mean, this is actually not the first audit that has happened in uh, your state recently. Maricopa County previously did an audit back in January of this year that determined that the software and the equipment used in the election had not been hacked or modified and uh, had found that all the ballots had actually been accurately counted. Is there some reason to believe that this audit will turn up different um, information? Well, again, I'm not going to speculate on what the audit is going to uncover or not uncover. But what I can tell you is the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors has a credibility problem. Mm -hmm. The public doesn't believe them and trust them. So even though they initiated uh, a couple of audits only after public outcry, the, that's not going to suffice because the public doesn't believe that the county uh, board of supervisors is interested in transparency and making sure that they're running uh, elections appropriately, efficiently, uh, and per statute. So we've kind of had no choice. If the board of supervisors had cooperated much earlier on in this process, perhaps we wouldn't be here. But um, we are here because of the, the lack of willpower on their end and the fact that the public just does not trust anything that the County Board of Supervisors is doing in relation uh, to elections right now in the state of Arizona. Well, so in terms of uh, this public trust issue that you're describing, if this audit, like the last one, turns up no evidence that anything went awry during this election, 
what then happens with the public trust? If the election in theory went off without a hitch and still this public trust has been eroded, what will they be able to do to earn back the public's trust? Well, I mean, I think this is a, uh, an appropriate and important first step. So if the audit comes back and, and nothing uh, looks suspicious or out of the ordinary, statute was followed, laws were followed, uh, then we're going to reaffirm that the election was run appropriately. And there, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, you want to trust but verify. Uh, we use audits all of the time. The IRS audits, we audit our state agencies. Audits um, are a familiar a tool, and there's no reason why we shouldn't uh, do it in this instance instance. And if there were problems with the election, what are you as a state legislator going to do to sort of prevent that from happening again? I mean, I know recently a massive legislative voting package was passed through the Arizona House and Senate. Is that sort of what the game plan here is? Are there other steps in place? Well, making sure we have uh, confidence in our elections and people want to participate in them should be something that the legislature is motivated uh, to address no matter what. But specifically as it relates to this audit, depending on what is uncovered, Mm -hmm. we can then do a deeper dive and look at what kind of legislative remedies there are. I mean, that's certainly within our purview and our job. Do you have a timeline estimate of how long this is going to take when you can expect results? Right. So we're looking at probably maybe three to four weeks. Um, And then I think uh, at least three or four weeks to gather the information and put it in um, a a package and a format that then can be shared with not only the senators, but of course the public. So, I mean, at that point, we're looking like we're almost going to be in the summertime at that point. I mean, this election was in the fall. What is your sense on the ground of how your constituents are feeling about the election continuing to be a subject matter that they have to contend with in the headlines and um, that their legislators are occupied with. Is there still, you know, significant interest from your constituents about getting to the bottom of some of these questions? Yeah, well, absolutely, because there's another election on the horizon, right, in 2022 and then Mm -hmm. one after that. I mean, so this is very important uh, that we address now. And the sooner we get it done, the sooner we'll be able to Uh, appropriately remedy uh, potential problems or reaffirm to the public that everything is fine. But, you know, we can be called back into special session to deal with things. We can do emergent, we can put emergency clauses on pieces of legislation so that they're enacted faster. There's lots of tools at our disposal, but the first thing we have to do is complete this audit so we know what we're dealing with. And are you, what is your specific role as it pertains to this audit? Are you somehow uh, the point person, the coordinator of it? The um, Senate president is really the point person of the audit. Um, She's been coordinating with the vendors and negotiating the contracts. Um, As someone who has done a lot in the election arena, I'm certainly supporting it and will probably deal with the um, uh, policy end of it, depending on uh, what what transpires and what we're able to conclude uh, in terms of fixes. Makes a lot of sense. Well, Senator, thank you so much for joining the program today. We really appreciate hearing from you, and we look forward to hearing from you again as this audit and its ensuing results uh, come out over the next couple of weeks and months. Thank you so much. We'll be back in just a few minutes with with the last sip, but also coming up later this evening during the 7 o'clock hour, you won't want to miss Dr. Gina's interview with former President Donald Trump. They'll get into a whole range of subject matters. This is an, it's going to be an exclusive Real America's Voice Dr. Gina primetime interview. Again, you don't want to miss that 7 o'clock hour right here on Real America's Voice. 
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to the show with Easter just around the corner this week. Who better to join us now than Pastor Brian Gibson, the founder of Peaceably Gather. Pastor, good afternoon. How are you? Hey, doing great, Sophie. It's an honor to be on with you today. Thank you so much. We're so pleased to have you here. So, Pastor, you have an Easter story that pertains to this last year of lockdowns and sort of your development in terms of what has what has gone on between this year, uh, between last year, excuse me, and this Easter. Tell us a little bit about what you've been working on and your experience last year in Kentucky. Yeah, over the last year, we've been fighting for the First Amendment and religious liberty for all Americans, not just Christians, but for everyone. And so last Easter, we were coming in, you know, the front of the lockdown, the front of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most churches were willing to, to play ball whenever they restricted us, started opening up other things. But eventually you look around and the big box stores are open. Your church is shut down, right? Uh, the liquor stores are open. Your church is shut down. Right. And so so that started to bother us. We, we put together an Easter egg giveaway. And this one was drive through last year because of the restrictions. And uh, they gave us a call from the health department in the state of Kentucky. Green River Health Department said, if you give a kid an egg in the name of Jesus, we're going to come and shut down your church. Hmm. And so uh, something on the inside of us kind of, I guess I'd say I blew a fuse. There's no replacement for it. And uh, so we decided to defy those unconstitutional mandates. Uh, we had a communion service where we passed out elements, and it turned into a, a, a organization called Peaceably Gather, where we opened up and partnered with 5,000 churches that opened their doors over three weeks, uh, even in spite of governor's unconstitutional mandates. Sure. So, I mean, now we're one year later. Lockdowns have in large part been uh, lifted, especially when it comes to churches and other types of religious institutions, though, of course, not entirely. What sort of an impact have you seen across the country in terms of spirituality, the the numbers of people who want to attend church services, people's plans for Easter? And, you know, what is actually allowed in terms of being open right now? Yeah, it's been uh, it's had a massive effect on church attendance and churches across America, spirituality as a whole. Most of this last year, we had about 30% of uh, churches open, right? 70% closed down for the majority of the last year with about 30% pre-COVID attendance on average. Uh, I know that there was a study that showed only uh, out of every three Christian Americans during the lockdown, uh, for like the first six months of the lockdown, only one of them watched a religious service online or excuse wow. me, one of them did not watch any religious service online nor attend any service. Okay. And so now they say that more churches are opening up. Uh, we're somewhere, they say somewhere 18 to 20, Pew said that percent. I've heard other studies as well that say different uh, are still locked down in America. And I know about half of the Americans, typically somewhere around 60% of Americans, 62% say they're going to attend an Easter service. This year, about 38% say that they will attend an Easter service. So if people don't go to church, they don't go to these gatherings, uh, we know as pastors, we know as clergy, that their spiritual life begins to falter. So it's it's alarming to us, and it's looking like uh, somewhat of the beginning of a great falling away in America. Right. So we believe in, even though there's darkness, though, we're praying for revival. 
And we believe that Jesus is bigger than any lockdown. That's the story of Easter, right? You put him in a tomb, and on the third day, God resurrects him. So that's what we believe, and uh, that's why we push back and keep preaching. Well, so I was going to say, in, in an America that seems to be moving further away from religion every day, how concerned are you that this last year of the pandemic has really exacerbated this pattern and sort of these lockdowns, these perpetual lockdowns, and even without the lockdowns, the perpetual fear that has been kind of implied by a lot of these restrictions and the virus has impacted religious life. Do you, do you think that e like, you know, even once people are vaccinated and feel comfortable again, the numbers will shoot back up? Or do you think this is going to be a longer term problem? Well, I think uh, anytime you feed a culture with fear and you try to control people through fear, you're creating a long-term problem. And if you look at the real stats and what uh, COVID has done in America, it is an irrational fear. Mm -hmm. uh, this is something that, that's, of course, COVID is real. It's been a problem, but it's not the problem that the media has made it be. Mm -hmm. And they're using it right now to restrict Americans' liberties. So we're talking about religious liberty restricted. Think about this. In the state of Nevada, the Supreme Court ruled that casinos could be open at, at 50% and churches were locked down forever. Uh, finally, the Supreme Court ruled that churches could be open at 25%. People acted like that is a victory. They were three quarters restricted while casinos got, got a, a wider open. Why could that be? Probably because of the money. And people are acting like that's some sort of victory. It's not a victory. It's a defeat. It's unconstitutional. It violates our First Amendment rights. So look, look at what it's doing religiously. Now think about what they're proposing with the vaccination passport. More restrictions on Americans' travel. So are we moving into a place where it's going to be like what, what Israel's doing right now, where uh, you, can, you can come uh, into the restaurant if you have your, your vaccination passport. If you don't, you can't. Uh, even the vaccination in the religious community, there's still large questions. The ones they say that aren't uh, created with, with aborted fetal tissue also are, are, are cell, um, it's like cell line, uh, fetal cell line tissue, okay. which is a derivative from abortion, uh, uh, aborted tissues and, okay. and regenerated, right, over 20 or 30 years. So there are big questions on what's going to be forced upon Americans. Uh, where will these things go? What's going to happen with religious liberty and spiritual life in America? And I think uh, we don't want to live in a total nanny state. We don't want to live where we're told what to do by our government. Come on, that's why there was an American, America in the first place. So sure. there's a lot of questions to be asked here. Well, Pastor, uh, just briefly before we have to go, what do you think is the most important thing that Americans of all sorts can be thinking about heading into this Easter weekend? Well, the most important message I, I have isn't, isn't on liberty in America. It's on spiritual liberty. And what we celebrate on Easter is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We know he went to a cross to, to pay for the sins of humanity, was placed in the tomb, but the tomb couldn't hold him. On the third day, the power of God brought him up. And I'm telling you, Jesus didn't just come once. He's coming back. So there's hope. I'm telling you, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Don't fear. Have faith. God is still with us. What a lovely message to be taking into the weekend. Pastor, thank you so much for joining us today. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Hey, thank you for having me. God bless you. We'll be right back after just a few brief breaks uh, with more water coolers. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the show. It's time for the last sip. Viewers of Just the News AM will know that I've been on top of all the details coming out of the ongoing saga surrounding New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, who was once hailed as the hero of the COVID era, though his legacy may look a little different today. Ten women, women have thus far come forward over the past couple of weeks to accuse the governor of inappropriate sexual conduct and harassment. These accusations have been combined with the already horrifying scandal that the governor is facing with regard to the memoranda he sent that forced state-run nursing homes to accept coronavirus-positive patients, allowing the disease to spread rapidly through the halls, killing thousands and thousands of senior citizens. Compound that with Cuomo, with the, with the Cuomo administration's attempt to then cook their books on the number of dead elderly people in an attempt to try to hide the true numbers from the Department of Justice, and you've got a pretty formidable competitor for one of the all-time great political scandals. Despite his absolute determination not to resign, though, things are only getting worse for the governor, and you know that because even the New York Times is all over this story. Yesterday, the Times published an account of how he got his $4 million book deal that you may recall focused on how well he handled the pandemic. The report says that Cuomo began taking meetings for the book as early as last spring and began writing it in June. Uh, furthermore, the governor was using a group of trusted aides and junior staffers to help write the book, which of course raises some questions about the use of public resources for personal gain. But honestly, that's a small point in relation to the bigger picture here, which of course is that Governor Cuomo, who had been hailed by the mainstream media as the hero of the pandemic, was sitting in the governor's mansion last spring taking Zoom pitch meetings for a $4 million book about his own heroism while thousands of seniors lay dying and his team was burying the evidence. Oh, and by the way, he was also sending private teams of New York Health Department workers to his brother, CNN anchor Chris Cuomo's Hampton's house to conduct private coronavirus testing. You truly cannot make this stuff up. So how has Cuomo been dealing with all of this? Well, again, he's not resigning, but he has been giving out little legislative gifts to New Yorkers. In New York, every time another woman comes forward to accuse the governor, you get a little reward. Most recently, we obviously found out that he uh, was in negotiations for this book while New Yorkers lay dying. So yesterday, the governor legalized marijuana. Yes, as the pandemic raged on and his hit team hid the details of dead seniors, uh, he is now saying the answer to that is to go smoke some pot, Forget about it. You know, we'll deal with that issue tomorrow. Cuomo is truly a guy who won't quit, even though at this point it is high time that he should. And that, everyone, is the last sip. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to The Water Cooler. Let's now take a look at our poll of the day, which today asked which of the following most contributes to mass shootings in the United States. Here to break down some of the responses we got is, again, Just the News news editor, Joe Weber. 
Hi, Sophie. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. So tell us a little bit about some of these numbers. I mean, we're looking at 45% of respondents blame mental illness above easy access to guns. 18% say it's gang violence. 9% yeah. are not sure. And, you know, roughly 30% say that it is, in fact, easy access to guns. What do you make of this breakdown? Okay, first of all, real quick, this is from our exclusive pollster, pollster Scott Rasmussen, and you really kind of have to feel a lot of confidence in numbers. Sometimes you take a look at them and say, well, who was polled? What was the, you know, the sample set? What was the margin of error? Mm -hmm. But you should take a look at the mental illness, obviously 45%. Um, you know, you could certainly make a prima facie case that, you know, anybody that would commit a mass shooting would likely have some mental illness numbers. So you have to kind of feel confident in that. Gang violence, only 18%. This really hasn't been a factor. You take a look, you know, uh, with the, a lot of these mass shootings like in Columbine or Parkland, uh, it was a bit of a grievance or they knew the, the person, the people who they were after. It wasn't gang violence. We take another interesting look at sort of some of the other data that's emerging that adds uh, sort of credence or validity to this poll. Um, there are 100 people a day killed by guns and two thirds of them are from suicide. So mm -hmm. there you go again uh, with the mental illness. The other thing real quick, um, there's been uh, two um, mass shootings since Biden took office and there's been seven uh, this year already. Well, actually with the one in California, make that eight. Wow, that's interesting. I mean, given results like these, I guess it, it paints a slightly better understanding for us of why Congress is so, you know, rabid about pouncing on this issue as soon as any type of tragedy or mass shooting occurs, but sort of immediately steps back after a couple of days, because these are the sorts of results that we're working with. Joe, thanks so much for stopping by and explaining the poll of the day. Thanks, Sophie. Uh, well, that about does it for this edition of The Water Cooler. I've been Sophie Mann, and this is not an April Fool's joke. I've had such a good time with you guys today. I will be back again tomorrow to give you a show at 3 p.m. Eastern. We'll see you then.